People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Laura Adams is a personal finance expert and award-winning author of multiple books, including Money Girl's Smart Moves to Grow Rich and her newest book, Money Smart Solopreneur, a personal finance system for freelancers, entrepreneurs, and side hustlers. She's been the host of Money Girl, the top-rated weekly podcast since 2008. Laura is a frequent guest on TV and radio and is quoted often in the national media. Millions of loyal listeners and readers benefit from her practical advice. Her mission is to help over 100 million students and consumers live richer lives through her podcasting, speaking, spokesperson, teaching, and advocacy work. Laura received an MBA from the University of Florida, and she lives in Vero Beach with her husband and their yellow lab. So, Laura, welcome to Health Gig. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be with you. We're so excited to have you here. We just have been big fans of yours, so it's fun to have you on our show. Yeah, it is so fun to connect. I really appreciate it. You've written nine books. Is that right? That's right. And you've been hosting a podcast before it was a thing. (laughs) And you're a speaker, TV personality, blogger, coach. I mean, you name it. You're all in, all with the goal of making finance understandable to everyone. So can you just tell us how did it all begin? For me, I didn't grow up thinking, gosh, I want to be a, a financial expert or author one day. That was not something that was in my in my mind. But as I grew up and really got interested in finance, um, I remember thinking about how much I wanted to manage my own money. So I was a teenager begging my mother for a checking account and a checkbook. I wanted to manage money. I was just always very interested in it and have always studied it. And I realized that as I got older, not everybody was so interested in money. And even though to me, it seemed fascinating and really fun for a lot of people, it was really just something they had to do. They had to manage. It was kind of drudgery. So started my career and I launched into accounting and doing some work in finance and realized that that really wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. Although I like numbers and I like money, I didn't really want to be an accountant. So that took me on a journey for a lot of different careers, and I've done a lot of different things, done training, done corporate work, have had my own business, have been in real estate, and eventually I worked my way back to the University of Florida. I got my undergraduate, we were talking before we started about my undergraduate work was from the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee which is a liberal arts school. So you get a a smattering of a lot of different great things. But as I got older and got out in the working world, I decided I want to learn a little bit more about business. So went to the University of Florida, got an MBA there. And it was really that program, that graduate program that kind of sparked an interest in me in personal finance. I was looking around at a lot of very successful cohorts, people who were C-level executives, had multiple master's degrees, very smart, educated people, but they were struggling with their personal finances. And a light bulb kind of went off in my head. And I said, you know what? You can be really smart, really intelligent, really book smart and suffer when it comes to your personal finances. 
So I really went on a kind of a crusade after that point to figure out what can I do to make some of these complex topics simple for everyday people, maybe even a little bit fun. That was around the time that podcasts were becoming popular. And so in 2007, I started podcasting on a weekly basis. And then in 2008, got involved with the Money Girl podcast with the network. And I have been podcasting every week since 2008. So we're up to like 680 something shows at this point. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. And impacting so many people. So obviously your approach is to educate people on how to be smarter or more educated and their financial responsibilities. Is that right? That's it. So I'm really all about financial wellness. I've never worked as an advisor, never been licensed per se. For me, it's all been very just education-based. I've been writing, podcasting, speaking. I've written a ton of books and now I've kind of gone into the small business space as well with my most recent book. But it's really all about trying to make very complex topics simple enough for people to feel comfortable kind of diving in and not only taking that information and putting it in their heads, but putting it into action. So the shows are very action oriented and I try to help people leave the show with something specific that they can do after the show to put into place right away to improve their financial life. That is what I think, again, is your secret sauce because your podcasts are just like that. Like you feel so educated and you do them in small time. I mean, sometimes they're 10 minutes, right? Sometimes they're 11 minutes, but you kind of get right to the point and give us a mission and we can get it done. Why are people so intimidated by personal finance? I think for many people, they don't have good role models when it comes to finance. Maybe their mom and dad weren't great with money. Maybe they've just never really seen somebody who was successful close to them. And so the idea of money, even just having money is a little bit intimidating. And some people do think that having money equates to being a bad person, you know, oh, you must have done something immoral to have accumulated some money. And the reality is, I view money as a vehicle for freedom. The more that you have, the more you can do for others. And it doesn't even mean we all need a ton of it to help others, but it just gives us flexibility. So I really promote just personal responsibility and security first. It's stressful when you're living on the edge financially. You don't have savings in place. You don't have retirement to think about. And so it's an area of life that can be very anxiety filled and very worrisome for most people. And I find that if you just give some folks some just clear pointers on prioritizing, let's do this first in what order that really can clear it up for many people. And they say, oh, okay, well, now I need to just accumulate a couple thousand dollars in an emergency savings first, then let's tackle some other things. So really just understanding what are the priorities, helping them understand what are good goals to have. Many people don't have financial goals. So what is a good financial goal for you? We're all unique. We're all different. We have different budgets and different dreams. So really thinking about what are just the fundamentals What do we tackle first? And then once we've tackled some of the basics, then we can get a little bit more advanced. And your audience is what groups? It's really 50-50 men and women. A lot of people think that it's money girl, that it must be all women, but it's actually about 50-50. Folks from, I would say, college age up to pre-retirement. So it is a very wide range 
and I get questions from kids in college that are just asking amazing questions and are thinking about their future. And I get questions from folks who are thinking about getting near retirement. What should they do? It's a really wide group. So I try to address the questions that I think will affect most people most of the time. What are the biggest concerns of a college student versus someone going into retirement? The one thing that I would say is common in both of those groups is that you do have to be thinking about your future first. And so college kids are often thinking about, how can I buy a car? How can I get a credit card? You know, how can I do these things that are more material oriented? I try to really get them thinking about, again, do you have that emergency savings? Are you prepared for an emergency? Have you thought about kind of the what if questions in life? Young people don't like to think about those questions. It's tough to think about retirement when you're in your late teens or 20s, and I get that. But when people see how much growth can be achieved over decades, then they get excited and they say, wow, you mean if I only put aside a little bit each month, I can actually retire a millionaire? And I say yes, very, very easily. And then on the other end, uh, folks who are nearing retirement, are you prepared? If you're behind the eight ball, you just got to get caught up and you've got to think about strategies that can protect your future security just as quickly as possible. And so there are some special strategies for folks who are nearing retirement. So it all comes down to kind of different buckets of money. Do you have a bucket for today? If you had an emergency tomorrow, are you prepared? Do you have a bucket that you're looking at for the future? Are you thinking about your future? And then also other things like, what are your dreams for philanthropy? Do you have a giving bucket that you're also thinking about as well? So helping people identify the dreams and sort of their buckets of money can, can really help them get organized. For the young people, it makes sense. Like the idea of just knowing that the more I save each month or year, the more I'll have when I'm older. But for those folks that are coming up to retirement and you were saying if they're a little bit behind, what are the strategies that they could use and to catch up? Well, there are some retirement accounts out there that have catch-up contributions. These are just designed for folks who are nearing retirement and just haven't saved enough. Once you are over 50, you are eligible to contribute more to your 401k at work, your 403b, maybe you've got a 457 plan. It just depends on the job, the company, or the organization that you're with. You can contribute more and also to an IRA, which is an account that anyone with income can have, even if you don't have a job with a retirement account. So taking advantage of those tax-advantaged accounts that are giving you tax advantages plus the opportunity to save more, that's a real winning combination for catching up. You know, if people are really, really behind, they may need to think about some other strategies. And for some people, it might even be relocating overseas. You know, and if you're an adventurous type of person and you've thought about living in a different country, in some cases, retirees can find a much higher standard of living in other countries, and they may enjoy that as part of their retirement. So you're saying think outside the box. What you said earlier just really rings true to us that financial health is so important. And that's why we call our yes. podcast Health Gig, because there's so many different kinds of ways to stay healthy. And as you were saying earlier, the financial stress just doesn't make for a healthy life. So you're saying, hey, there's all kinds of options out there. Let's just look at them. 
That's right. Yes, finances and health go hand in hand, right? Health and wealth. It is something that a lot of people don't give much thought to until they begin getting close to retirement. And then all of a sudden panic sets in. And I want to prevent that. I want to make sure people don't have to go through that panic. Speaking of panic, debt, how much is too much? And how do you get out of debt? Let's also talk about student loans, which is such a hardship these days. With debt, it is such a personal topic because for some people, even a penny of debt is too much and they feel very uncomfortable with it. For other people, they have used debt strategically, maybe to grow their wealth and they feel comfortable with it because they know they have enough income to make those debt payments. So it really does depend on your kind of philosophy about debt. I tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I'm okay with debt that can help you grow your wealth. And what that typically means is debt like a reasonable mortgage, debt like reasonable student loans, perhaps even an auto loan if you need that car to get to work to earn an income. So those types of debts I would put in the good category because in general, they can help you either earn more or build your net worth over time. The bad debt, which all too often people are letting get out of hand are the consumer debts. So these are things like financing a vacation, financing a very fancy wardrobe, financing you know, electronics and furniture. These are things that have zero value after the date that you buy them. They don't appreciate. They are depreciated or worth nothing right after you've spent the money. On the other hand, if you spend the money on a mortgage that has bought a home that has the opportunity to appreciate, that's an asset that you'll own that will help you gain even more wealth. Getting rid of consumer debt is one of the very first things that many people have to focus on because it's so expensive. They're paying outrageous interest rate on credit cards. And so, you know, not only does something that you charged, let's say a couple years ago, if it takes you years to pay that item off, you're going to end up paying triple the original cost of that item than if you had just paid cash or had paid off the credit card bill in the very first month. The problem with most types of debt is that it is a downward spiral. It is just making you worse off every single month versus with a good type of debt. It's typically making you better off every month, again, with reasonable amounts. It's almost a mindset. You've got to get yourself in a mindset and see it this way, not that. It's like Dora building a habit. Dora's in the process right now of building habits. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, a financial habit. Yeah, absolutely. And with student loans, this is becoming such a burden for so many people. Unfortunately, a lot of people take out lots of loans thinking, well, I'm just going to make such huge salary down the road that it's going to be so easy to pay it off and things may not work out the way they hoped. And then all of a sudden they're 10, 20 years later and they're still burdened with debt. So with student loans, I've got a rule of thumb that is never take out more in student loans than you believe you will reasonably earn the first year after you graduate. So let's say you're going to go into nursing. You believe that your first year in nursing, you can earn $65,000 a year. That would be the total, like the maximum amount that I would recommend that you take out in student loans. And the rest of the money, you might need to work while you're in school. Maybe you could even borrow a little bit from mom and dad or family if they're willing to help you out. 
or maybe even you save up before you go to school in order to make sure at least you don't have to borrow every penny of your tuition. That is a really good tip. How do you figure out on the other end of the spectrum when you can retire? Yeah, this is so interesting because for some people, they've got a really set vision of retirement. They really want to sort of stop working and begin traveling or doing volunteer work. And for other people, retirement is much more loosely defined. It might be a career change. It might be going from that high pressure corporate work into maybe a part-time job that isn't quite as stressful. So you do have to first define what retirement means to you. For some people, they feel like they want to work to the day they die. They want to work till they just can't do it anymore because they love what they do so much. So I would never tell somebody, you must stop working, you know, at the age of 65 or 67 and collect retirement and call it quits. For many of us, happiness and health means to continue contributing, to continue working, to continue feeling valuable in society. So it really does come down to what is your vision for retirement? And if it truly does mean stopping all income producing activity, then you are going to need to decide, okay, what is the amount of money that I need that can generate on its own dividends or interest income that I can use to spend in retirement? And it's very useful to work with an advisor or somebody that can kind of look at that path, that glide path into retirement and estimating how long are you going to live? You know, there's so many different variables in that equation, not only the future inflation rate, your future tax rate, how long you think you're going to live. You know, if you're in great health and you think you're going to live a long time, you might need a little bit more than somebody who doesn't have great health right now, or it has a family history of some challenges with their health. I would say getting some assistance in this can be super helpful. There are also online calculators online that can give you an idea, like a ballpark of how much you might need. And then it will kind of back into, well, what does that mean that I need to be saving every month until that future point? So there are some ways, different ways to attack it. But if you are nearing retirement, it's likely that you could benefit from some professional help. Can you share with us the thoughts on social security and when to take that and talk to us about Medicare and all that? Yeah, what's interesting with Social Security is that if you need it, you are not making much income and Social Security is going to be your main source of income, which unfortunately it is for many, many Americans. If you need it, you need to delay collecting it as long as possible. So for most of us, that's going to mean delaying until age 70 if possible. For the people who don't need it, the advice is typically take it as early as possible. So it's very counterintuitive. Yeah. Interesting. Why is that? So if you don't really need it, if this is something that's just kind of gravy on the top of your income, collecting early at age 62 will be much less, but it gives you the opportunity to collect that money as quickly as possible to use it while you're still alive and can enjoy it or give it away. But for folks who need it, waiting until later that will allow you to collect a higher amount. And in a lot of cases, it's significantly higher amount when we're talking about somebody who's low income. So that small increase makes a big difference to someone who is on a very tight budget. That's really interesting. It is. Speaking of budgeting, people often leave their budget to chance. What are some budgeting tips for people who do that? Not saying it's me. 
but some people do. <laughs> and how damaging is this? If you don't know where your money's going, how can you make wise decisions and make changes? They say 60% or more, I would venture that it's more, don't have a budget. So there are a very small minority of people who are out there who are really sticking to a budget and creating it. You know, it doesn't have to be something very rigid. I'm a big believer in having flexibility. I think if you can take care of what I call the big rocks in your finances first, a lot of other things will fall into place. So what I mean by that is, are you putting aside money for savings? Are you contributing to a retirement account? Are you paying for insurance that you really need, health insurance, other types of insurance that you may need? Taking care of those first, if you can do that, it really, in a lot of cases, doesn't matter what you spend the rest of the money on because you're taking care of the important things first. That's kind of budgeting from the ground up and looking at, okay, what are the things I want to take care of down here first? And then the rest of the items are going to fall into place. But if you are on a super, super tight budget, really looking at every penny that you're spending and making sure that you are cutting back enough so that you do have enough of a contribution to a retirement account, you do have enough to put aside for savings, you can afford health insurance on your own, those sorts of things. Having a spending plan can be the key to understanding where you need to cut back so that you can take care of the most important parts of your life. But for a lot of people like me, I really work from the idea of taking care of the big rocks first. I don't budget. I just know that all of my important goals are funded every single month. And so I live on what's left over. Just a little aside question. During COVID, have you seen people overspending because they have more time to surf the internet? What are the trends that you've seen? Interestingly, we have seen the savings rate go up significantly. So I think that for many people, it's been a scary time and they've thought, gosh, maybe my job will be cut next. And so they begin to cut back. And as you mentioned, they're home, they're maybe not going out to restaurants, we're not doing as much entertainment, we're not spending on those sorts of discretionary items. But I think it's been a good thing that people have increased their savings overall. And yes, if you've been struggling right now, you know, you haven't been spending anything, you know, probably the uh, stimulus payments have been a real blessing for you. So if you can afford to maintain those savings or that income, those stimulus payments, if you can save them and use that to build an emergency fund or boost your emergency fund, I think that's a really great goal to have. But for a lot of people, you know, they're finding themselves sitting on a little bit more money right now than they had before the pandemic. That's interesting. That's good. What are your thoughts on long-term care for people? It's an expensive proposition. Long-term care insurance is pricey. There's no getting around it. It really makes sense for people to start shopping in their, I would say, mid-50s is a good time to start. If you pay for it too early, you risk spending a lot of money on premiums that you don't get the benefit of the insurance from. But around age 55 is really, I think, the sweet spot to start shopping it. There are some different ways to tackle it. There might be some opportunities for an annuity that comes with some long-term care. There are even some life insurance policies out there that will come with some long-term care. So don't get discouraged if you're shopping for long-term care insurance and saying, gosh, I just can't afford this. There are some other products out there that can help you. And so basically, this is going to be the cost of having maybe in-home care 
This is something that your health insurance is not going to pay for. You know, if you are home and you're unable to cook for yourself, to dress yourself, take care of those everyday responsibilities that you just need to live and be happy, that's not something you can make a claim on your health insurance for, your disability insurance for. So it really is a special needs case. And for most people, it's something that they are going to have to deal with at some point in their life. So I would say have a conversation with an insurance professional about it and talk about all the options and see what you can afford. I was going to ask something that I have no earthly idea what it is. Cryptocurrency. I don't understand it. I don't know a thing about it. I don't, who invented it? What is it? <laughs> Doro, this has been something that a lot of people have been really interested in lately because the value of Bitcoin kind of went through the roof and has been really intriguing people because it's gone from a high value to a much higher value. And so people want to say, well, gosh, should I get on that train? You know, should I get on that rocket if it's going up? And for most people, cryptocurrency is something, as you said, they don't understand. It is a decentralized currency that is tracked on something called the blockchain. And so you can't touch it, you can't see it, but it is valuable. And it's certainly a growing platform. More and more different retail organizations, different retail shops are starting to take cryptocurrency. You know, that's interesting if you own some and you want to spend it online. But for the average person, the average investor, something like cryptocurrency is entirely too speculative and too risky for them. I would say if you're going to buy something like cryptocurrency, it's almost like going to a casino. It is not a solid investment strategy. It's just too volatile. And for the average person, they really need to be putting their money into stable investments like mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, things that mimic the indexes so that as these indexes go up slowly over time, your value of those funds is also going up slowly over time. I'm a big believer in kind of slow and steady wins the race. And if you've got money to burn and you're just fascinated by cryptocurrency, sure, buy a little bit. Think of it as a hobby as a recreation and not a solid investment strategy. What about, I've heard of somebody who buys gold and puts it under their bed. What about that? <laughs> this is very similar. So gold and all currencies are volatile. So if you've got the room in your portfolio to allow for volatility, so be it. But if you're somebody who really does not want to take as much risk with your investments, you want to feel like they're solid and slowly growing over time, I'm going to recommend more mainstream investments. Now, does that mean you should not own some percentage of your portfolio in currencies? Absolutely. You know, maybe I would say five up to 10% might be a good percentage of your overall portfolio to own in currencies. And again, for some people, they're just fascinated by different types of investments. And so I would say go into it cautiously and make sure it's just a small percentage of your overall portfolio. One other question back to the retirement. There used to be the rule of 4%. Does that still hold? It does. That is something that still is out there and used by advisors. The idea is that if you've got a nest egg, you can take out a certain amount per year to live on while still allowing that nest egg to grow and without depleting it to the point that you're going to run out of money before you die. And so that's the idea. It's going to vary depending on how much you have in your retirement portfolio, how long you expect to live, what your lifestyle is like. All of these things play a big factor. But for the average retiree, 4% is still a good rule of thumb. 
And you could expect that, do you think, the 4% rule pretty much over time? That's oh. the idea that you could withdraw 4% each year of your portfolio. Now, this is also if it is invested. So it's kind of growing at the same time that you are withdrawing that 4%. Again, you're not taking out more than you're going to need in order to maintain that income through the rest of your life. 60% stocks, 40% bonds. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's actually pretty conservative and it does depend on your age. So the younger you are, the more time you've got before retirement, right? So if you're mid twenties and you've got decades to go, you can be a little bit riskier. So let's say someone in their twenties might have a portfolio that could be even 80%, 90% stocks, depending on how you feel about it. If you are willing to kind of go for it and make sure that you get maximum growth, you want to be more heavy in stock funds than bonds. As you get older, we want to pull back and be a little bit more conservative. We want to preserve the wealth that we have built, not put it at risk as we approach retirement. So the idea is only take enough risk with your money to achieve your goals. There's no reason to take any more risk than that. And so when you're young and you've got plenty of time for that money to grow, being a little bit more aggressive is fine because you've got plenty of time to recover from any dips in the market. You don't have that much time to recover as you're approaching retirement. And so getting higher amounts of bonds and cash in your portfolio makes more sense. One of the fun things to do is like look online and look at people's net worth. <laughs> I'm talking about like celebrities and stuff, you know, like, oh, what's Matthew McConaughey's net worth? Um, but how do you figure out net worth? That is kind of a fun thing to do, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's actually a really simple equation. So total assets minus total liabilities. Let me give you a pretty simple example. Let's say your only asset is your home. You've got a $500,000 home, but you owe $250,000 on that home. The difference is the net worth. So you're going to take all the assets you own and then subtract out all the liabilities. So the mortgage, the loans to friends, the personal loans, student loans, all of those liabilities are going to be subtracted from the value of your home, the value of your car. And then what you're left with is net worth. And for a lot of people, that's a super scary number because it's negative. For young people, they don't like the idea that they owe more than they own. And so that's not uncommon. It's not a good thing, but you know, it's not uncommon. And so the idea is how can you increase every year? How can I increase my assets or decrease my liabilities or do both at the same time to slowly increase my net worth? You know, it's kind of magical if you track it over time to see that grow and you can feel really good about yourself when your net worth is going up. And that's a, just a key number that I think everybody should be tracking. And you can create a little spreadsheet for yourself and maybe every January go in and update it with the value of your investments and the increased value of your home or the decreased value of your vehicle against the outstanding loans for those things and see, wow, you know, I'm worth a little bit more this year than last year. And you do that long enough and you are building real wealth. If you go the other way, you're in big trouble, but it can be really lift your spirits <laughs> if it's working. Um, That's right. So if you had a million dollars right this minute, someone handed it to you, what would you do with it? 
Wow. Well, you know, for me personally, my big goal is always forward looking. It's always retirement. And so I am constantly just thinking about the future. So honestly, I would save every bit of it for me personally. I'd probably give away uh, quite a bit of it as well. But if you are somebody who, let's say you did not have much net worth and you were handed a million dollars, I would say build up that emergency fund. Make sure you've got at least three to six months worth of living expenses, even more maybe depending on your family situation and your work situation. Then think about what's going on with my future. Do I have a retirement account? Am I putting it away on a consistent basis? I'd also think about insurance. Do I have life insurance? Do I have disability? Do I have all those good coverages that I need to protect myself and my family if something unexpected occurred? And then looking at what debt do I have? I'd probably pay off, of course, those high interest debts, the credit cards, personal loans. I might not be so quick to pay off a mortgage unless it was a higher interest rate than the going rate right now. Mortgages are so cheap right now that for most people, it's one of the most affordable debts you could ever have. So I think I would look at it in that order. Anything left over would probably you know, be a nice gift for family. That's a good plan. Talk to us about your new book. Yeah. So my latest book is Money Smart Solopreneur. It's a personal finance system for freelancers, entrepreneurs, and side hustlers. That's us. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I love it. You know, I've had so many people ask questions about becoming a small business owner or starting a side gig, whether it's driving an Uber or delivering groceries during the pandemic. And they want to know, how do I do this? What's involved to start a business? How do I do the fundamental things? Like, should I have a bank account? Do I need to form a business entity? How do I just handle handle the personal and the business side. This book really takes you from the very beginning all the way through taking advantage of retirement accounts for the self-employed. It's, you know, not that difficult starting a business, but I think people have a lot of questions about it and that can prevent them from getting started. And I don't want to see that because getting self-employment income can be one of the most transformative things in your life. You know, it can really help you accomplish goals, get out of debt, have multiple streams of income. That can really make the difference between struggling and feeling successful and having more success in your life. So trying to make the whole process of working for yourself a little more transparent and easy to, to get started. That's great. We're lucky because Trisha is a small business owner. She spent her life working with small business. So she's our resident expert, <laughs> but we certainly are going to get the book because it's going to help us along the way. I know. Well, I appreciate that. There are so many people starting businesses right now. It's really been you know, quite a year for entrepreneurship. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there are over 30 million small businesses in the United States and 85% of them have no employees. They are solopreneurs. So there are a lot of people out there who are working either on their own or just with other solopreneurs, other independent contractors and freelancers. Right. Like the old saying, small business is really a huge business. <laughs> That's right. But God, this has just been really informative. Unbelievable. I feel like we just have this treasure trove over there. You know? <laughs> yeah. Are your do. parents really proud of you? <laughs> um, they are. They are in, they live in South Carolina where I'm from. And 
I'm ready to see them again. Hopefully I'll be able to see them in a couple months after we have everybody vaccinated and can begin to move around a little bit. Yeah, they must be. But the way that you carved this out really as an entrepreneur, really, as you got started, you really are a woman entrepreneur that started this way back, really before a lot of people were doing the podcast. It's pretty amazing. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't mentioned? I think the big thing for people really is to be curious. We're not born understanding business or personal finances, right? It it is a lifetime of education and curiosity. And so if you're curious, follow it. You know, if you have a question, get the answer to the question. And that may take you to another question and just continue asking questions, seeking advice, listening to great podcasts like Health Gig, reading books, (laughs) all of that is going to help you. I wasn't born knowing all this stuff. I've been learning and teaching myself and studying for decades. So I would just encourage people to don't be discouraged by their money. If they're feeling challenged right now, the answers are out there. Sometimes you just have to go looking for them. Well, thank you. That is amazing and great advice. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.